Good morning. How is everyone? All right, good, good. Uh, before we jump into our text, I just wanna let you know uh, one more announcement that, that is happening next Sunday, right after the service. Next Sunday, we are going to have a members meeting, especially called members meeting. And in that meeting, we're gonna do a couple of very important things. One, we're gonna be, so they're gonna be doing that. They're recommending a group of men and women to serve on the pastor search team. And so they're gonna be doing that. They're also gonna be introducing a couple other important uh, matters that, that if you're a member, you need to be here next Sunday. So we'd love for you to make that a priority next Sunday, right after the service, we will have that meeting. With that said, I'd like to invite you to grab a Bible and open it with me to that passage that that Jonathan did a great job of reading this morning. Um, It's found at the very beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew. So go ahead and make your way there. Just like I said last week, Matthew is is one of the four books in the New Testament that are biographies of of the life of Jesus Christ. And, And when you get there, you're gonna be looking for chapter 14, which are the larger numbers, and then verse 22, which is the smaller number. I have to believe that that every single one of us in this room has the common experience of starting something really, really strong only to kind of fall away as time goes on. I don't think I'm alone in that. In fact, I know it's true because I asked Google this week. I got on Google, I looked at it and put in a search. I said, what do people start strong but finish poorly? And I thought my computer was gonna have a heart attack. It had about a billion responses to that question. Can any of you guess what the number one answer to that question is? What do people start strong but finish poorly? Anybody? Dieting. Dieting. Well done. Smart church. I'm so proud of you guys this morning. It just means this. We've all done it, right? How many of you have started a diet that you didn't complete? I think most of us in this room, um, Rachel and I, not long ago, I think it was a couple years ago, decided that we were going to jump in on this Whole30 craze. It's a diet where you, you have to eat super healthy. In essence, you eat uh, no, no cheese, no sugar, no bread, nothing fun, okay? That's in essence what the diet is. And I started really strong. We got a book that told us what we could and couldn't eat, and we were doing really well. But by day 13, let me just tell you, I was an angry guy. And the thing that broke me is really funny, but it was ketchup. Now, most of you think ketchup, it's not a big deal, it's so small, but the whole week I had been eating this substance that they said was like ketchup, but it was nothing like ketchup, which apparently has sugar, so you can't eat the real thing. And that day I got it and I, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to eat this ketchup. So I got my ketchup bottle and I poured it all over my plate. That night I went to a Giants game. I ate pizza, bacon, cheddar, tater tots, and a Ghirardelli sundae. My diet was over. I was done. But that's what we do. We start strong, but then along the way, we kind of fall away. Uh, Some other interesting answers on that Google search were this. Workout plans, medical school, college. In the top five, I was very interested about this one, Navy SEAL training. I'm like, how many people actually start Navy SEAL training? Apparently, some people like to get into that. This one was funny. Trying to sign up for healthcare at healthcare.gov. That was on there. Rachel, I appreciate the, the one that rounded out the top 10, starting a new hobby. 
Um, I am infamous in our home for starting hobbies that I do not see to its completion. Whether it's running a marathon, I made it like two days of running. One time I decided I'm gonna be the next great chef. And so I started watching all these cooking shows. I got all these books and I even saved up. I'm not kidding, like a year's worth. If you do the Dave Ramsey system, you get your fun money every month. It was like $25 a month for me. And I saved up that money to buy the best all clad saute pan that I could buy. You wanna know how many meals I made in that saute pan? Two, I made it to two, not just one. I made it to two and the rest of the time I have made grilled cheese sandwiches on that saute pan, that's about it. We all have this experience of starting strong but finishing poorly. It's a common human experience and the same is true when it comes to our faith. You've probably noticed in the headlines, if you're paying attention, there have there've been some key influential Christian leaders that even recently have started strong, but now they have wandered from the faith. I would imagine that many of you in this room have resolved, you had great faith at one point. You said, I am going to read through the Bible in a year. Or maybe you've said, I'm gonna start memorizing scripture. Or maybe you've said, I've got resolve. I am going to take this step of beginning to share my faith with my friends or my neighbors or my people at work or my family. Maybe you've said, I'm gonna start tithing. I'm gonna give sacrificially. I'm gonna give generously. There's a moment where you have, we're full of faith and you said, here's what I'm going to do. And then over time, you fell away. Some of you are junior high, high school students. I know you guys just got back from camp. There's many times where, where students have a high experience with God, a moment of being with God all week. You make resolutions. I'm going to have my faith influence me in this way. But then as the school year goes along, what happens? We, we falter. We begin to lose the resolve that we once had. This morning, with all of that in mind, I'm going to talk about a faith that endures. A faith that not just gets out of the boat, but a faith that continues walking toward Jesus, pursuing him with all of our life. In Matthew 14, we have a pretty well-known story of a disciple who falters in his faith. Our current sermon series is all about his interactions with Jesus. His name is Simon Peter, one of the key disciples. Peter is one of those guys that I said last week, I think we all love Peter because we see so much of Peter in our own journeys with Jesus. He was a man that was big on promises, but sometimes short on execution. He was a man who was faithful to Jesus, pursued Jesus, and yet he was very flawed. I think many of us can relate with Peter. This passage occurs immediately after Jesus fed the, the crowd of over 5,000 people. So there's a lot going on here. Jesus is teaching the disciples that I'm bigger than who you think I am. And he uses this next passage to continue that lesson. Let's read it together in verse 22. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind had come against them, talking about the disciples. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write down this principle. If you wanna know how do, I, how do I experience an enduring faith, it starts this way, an enduring faith requires storms. The building of an enduring faith, a faith that lasts requires storms. I've read through this passage, I mean, my goodness, numerous times in my life, I'm sure you have as well. I've never stopped to think about what these first verses teach us about Jesus. 
I quickly go to, well, Jesus walked on the water. What does that teach us? But, but here at the very beginning, I want you to think about this. Jesus sends his disciples into a storm. He commands them, go out to sea where he knows there's going to be a storm. The disciples, all they do is be obedient. They do what Jesus called them to do and it leads them to be battered by the waves and by the wind. There's a phrase that is sometimes thrown around that says, the safest place to be is is in the middle of the will of God. And to an extent, that's absolutely true, right? There's no more important place to be than in the center of the will of God. But if you think safe, means that it's gonna be easy. If you think safe means that it's gonna be just kind of all rosy picture, that that nothing's gonna happen, let me just tell you, your journey of being obedient to Jesus is gonna come with great disappointment. Because Jesus oftentimes, as we see here, sends people into storms. Why? Because at the end of the day, God's will is not just to do something for us or to do something for us. God's ultimate will is to do something in us, to change us, to change where we put our trust. I've recently been walking with some of the members of our family that have been going through this. They took a pretty major step of faith about three months ago a step that they felt like they were being obedient to God. And, and yet now we've had conversations with them because they're, they're, they're confused, they're disappointed because their obedience has led to great difficulty. It's led to a very hard situation. And they're thinking, where is God in this? It is imperative that we as a church get our, our minds around this truth. Just because something is hard does not mean that it's not the will of God. Have you ever thought about that? Just because something is difficult does not mean that it's not God's will for your life. We as God's people should not be surprised when our obedience leads to difficulty. For one, we have an enemy that is a constant antagonist to the way of Christ. But two, we have a God who leads us into storms. Why? Because he knows on the other side of those storms are what he would call enduring faith. The disciples who followed Jesus and later after his death and resurrection were were thrown into a great deal of persecution, a great deal of hardship. They learned this lesson. In the book of James, he says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is he saying? He's saying is if you want endurance, if you want steadfastness, if you want to be a complete Christian, it's going to go through adversity. There's going to be trials. Paul says this in Romans 5 verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. I think a lot of times we think the greatest thing that God does in my life is when he puts blessings and he pours blessings onto our life. That's the greatest thing God does. Friends, that's not the truth. The greatest thing that God does in our life is to teach us to trust in him alone. That's the greatest thing that he could ever do in your life to teach you to put all of your trust, 100% of your trust in him. And that's the why he often leads us into difficulty instead of around it. The storms may vary from season to season. I know many of you in this room are walking through relational storms right now. I've talked to you about these storms. Some of you in this room are walking through financial storms, job storms. Some of you are in the storm of doubt, 
where you're looking at this whole Christianity thing saying, is this even true? Some of you are walking through health storms, others through emotional storms. I wish I could tell you this morning that if Jesus is in your life, automatically those storms are going to go away. That's not what happens. You look at the text with the disciples, what does it say? It says, Jesus doesn't come to his disciples until the fourth watch of the night. That means that they battled that storm on their own in the sea with the waves and the winds crashing against them for over six hours. On the sea, that must have felt like an eternity. I would imagine that many of the disciples had given up hope that they were gonna make it out of that storm. And yet Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was using their storm as a training ground to teach his disciples more about him, more about his faithfulness, more about his power, more about the love that he had for them. If you're walking through a storm today, maybe it's a a storm that just came up recently. Maybe it's a long storm. You feel like you've been in this storm for an eternity. What if God is using that storm not to, to, to beat you down, but to train you? What if God is using, let me say this, I build within you an enduring faith that trusts in him alone. Let me say this, I believe that that is what God is wanting to do in our church in this season of transition. I think it's very easy when things are going really well and there's no problems for us just to kind of be on spiritual cruise control. But the reality is when there's uncertainty, when there's a little bit of waves, when there's a little bit of wind, what does that do? I believe God is trying to teach us as a church another lesson of his trustworthiness, that we can look to him. He is worthy of our trust. Well, as this passage continues, it tells us the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water and they do what any of us do would do. What'd they do? Freak out. <laughs> they begin shouting, it's a ghost. They don't know what this is. Is it a, is it a demon? Is it an angel? What, what is this walking on the water? Humans don't walk on water. But again, they were learning a lesson about Jesus. Jesus was no ordinary human. Even the natural laws are under his authority. And so we see Jesus respond to their fear in this way. Verse 27, he says, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus, which is amazing. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Principle number two this morning. An enduring faith requires a steady focus. Not only does it require going through your storms, but in the midst of those storms, it requires that we don't look to the left. We we don't look to the right, but we look straight toward Jesus. I love what happens here. Peter, as flawed as he is, cannot wait to get out of the boat because he's saying this, if Jesus is over there, I wanna be with him. In the midst of this storm, if if that's Jesus, then then I wanna be with him. Peter loves Jesus. He's faithful. And what I love about him here is he doesn't presume on Jesus. He says, if it's you, call me, command me to come, and then I will come. Peter doesn't just jump out into the water. He waits for the call of Jesus. What this reveals to me about Peter's faith is that at the very beginning, what enables him to get out of the boat, to do the supernatural is two things. His focus is on the person and the word of Jesus Christ. 
It's on the person of Jesus. When Jesus came to the disciples, he, what he says is very simple. He just says, it is I. Do not be afraid. In essence, what he's saying is, disciples, you know me. You know my character. You know my power. You've, you've seen the love that I have for you. It is I. And that's all that Peter needed. He said, if that's you, then I'm coming. But he doesn't just come. What does he wait for? He waits for Jesus' word. That's what his focus is on here. He says, Jesus says, come. And it's at that moment that he steps into the water. He says, even if what you're asking me to do, Jesus, seems crazy, I believe that your word is more trustworthy than all the crazy circumstances around me in my life. I'm going to put my focus on your word. I'm going to do what you call me to do. And he steps out and he begins to walk on the water. I love what another pastor, J.D. Greer, said about this passage. He says, Peter is not so much walking on water as he is walking on the promises of God. He's not so much standing on the waves as he is standing on the character of Jesus. And friends, when Jesus calls us out of our comfort zone, out of our own boats, into trusting him, that's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to stand on his character, to stand on his word. And enduring faith requires that we set our focus consistently on the person and word of Jesus. That is why I think that most every single Sunday, and I will never apologize for it, the most important, greatest thing that you can do every day of your life is to set your focus on Jesus Christ, to spend time in his word, to spend time praying, pouring out your heart to him, bringing all of your needs, all of your cares, casting them at his feet listening to what he's called you to do, thinking about what he's already done for you through this cross and resurrection. It's for this reason that the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 12. Think about it as it relates to an enduring faith. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. In other words, he's saying, would we throw off all the distractions? What do we look to? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, again, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you want to run with endurance... What it requires is setting your focus in a daily manner on the person and word of Jesus Christ. When, when does the text say that Peter begins to sink? Look at it in verse 30. It says this, but when he saw the wind, when he took his eyes off of Jesus and he put his eyes onto the wind. Now, of course, you can't see the wind, right? What it's talking about is the storm, the waves, the wind, the circumstances around him. When he takes his eyes off Jesus and he puts them on the wind, his fear and anxiety begin to cloud his faith. I don't know about you, but this describes my walk with Christ to a T. On those days where I'm in the word, where I've spent time applying his word to my heart, where I've thought about what he's done for me on the cross, where I've cast all my burdens at his feet, on those days, it's like I'm on top of the world. I can walk through anything. It doesn't matter what, what happens to me on the outside. I, my focus is on him. His kingdom is first. But on those days that I don't spend time with Jesus, I'm just like Peter. I'm falling constantly. 
I'm looking not to Jesus, but all of a sudden in my day, I'm looking to this circumstance and I'm looking at that circumstance and I'm filled with fear. I'm filled with anxiety. How that looks in my own life is I get really busy. I try to control the circumstances so that I don't have to fear, so I don't have to feel anxious. I sink. I go down into the waves of despair of them. I would imagine if we want to run toward Jesus, it means we can't take our eyes off of him. I would imagine you've experienced that same thing too. At one point, you were convinced of Jesus' trustworthiness. At one point, you said, his word is more trustworthy than my circumstances. I'm gonna put my trust in him. But along the way, what happened? The winds, the waves. And over time, that faith, that resolve has kind of just petered out. You began to look around and all of a sudden you thought, eh, Jesus' way is too risky. And so you've gone back to the boat. You've gone back to your own comfort zone. When our eyes get diverted from Jesus as the object of our trust, we will sink. And friends, we all sink, okay? It's not just you. You're not alone in that. We all sink. But here's the incredible good news of this message. It is that no matter how many times our eyes as his disciples get diverted from Jesus, Jesus' eyes are always on us. He is there. When we begin to sink, Jesus isn't far away, but instead when, when Peter cries out as he's going, submerging into the water, when he cries out, Jesus, save me. What does it say? Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Our last principle this morning, and this is the most important one, an enduring faith requires an enduring savior. It requires an enduring savior. When we get to the end of this passage, we, we find that the main point is definitely not how can we walk on water. It's not the main point of this text. I tried it as a kid, it does not work. Over and over again, I go down. The main point of this text is not even to say, hey, this is how great or weak Peter's faith is. No, the main point of this text is to point us to the great faithfulness of Jesus. That in our sinking, he is there and ready to save. At the end of the day, it is not the fervency of your faith that will bring you into the arms of Jesus. It is the object of your faith, Jesus himself. If you think about it, if you have a really strong faith, but it's in the wrong thing, it doesn't matter much. If I were to bring a, a chair up on stage and it's a broken chair and I were to stand next to this chair and say, let me just tell you, I 100% believe that this chair can hold me up. I have incredible faith. I am fervent in my belief that that chair will hold me up. If I jump on that chair, what's gonna happen? It's gonna tumble to the ground and I'm gonna go down with it. Didn't matter how great my faith was. At the same time, if I bring a sturdy chair up on this stage and I have really weak faith, I'm scared to death of sitting in that chair, but I, but I slowly shift my weight onto that chair. What's gonna happen? It's gonna hold me up. What mattered was not the fervency of my faith. It was the object of my faith. And what Matthew is saying in this, this text is he's saying, Jesus is the only worthy object of your faith. He's the only one worthy that you can place not just a bit of your life, just a hand or a foot, no, you can place all of your life trusting in his person and in his word and he will hold you. Even when you fall, he is there. He's not far away. He's close and when you call out to him, even if it's in fear, he's there to grab you and pull you to himself. 
I love the picture that this story paints. At the very same moment, Peter is freaking out. Jesus is standing on the water, completely unfazed by the wind. He's completely unfazed by the waves that are crashing around him. Jesus can stare into the most terrifying things in this world. Think about this. The things that give you anxiety, the things that bring you pain, the things that make you fear. He can look at those things and remain constant and steady and ready to save. He alone is that worthy object. And so what does Jesus do? He pulls Peter to himself. And instead of kind of just dismissing Peter because of his lack of faith, what does he say? He says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He's not reprimanding Peter in this passage. He's instructing him. He's saying to Peter, like he so often says to us, Ryan, did you not remember that my word was more trustworthy than your circumstances? Do you do not remember that I love you? That nothing in this world can make you sink. I have you. You are my son. Why are you afraid? Why are you anxious? It says that Jesus and Peter then proceeded to go back to the boat. And it ends in this way, verse 32. It says, and when they got back into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. I personally feel pretty powerful when my, my kids are in front of the television and they're fighting about whatever show they're gonna watch. They're all saying, I want this, I want that. I feel pretty powerful when I take the remote and I just turn off the TV. Jesus does that with the weather. Do you see that in this text? When he gets back into that boat, it's as if he says, okay, guys, lesson's over. Wind, cease. And the wind ceases immediately. I picture the whole group of disciples with that emoji with the wide eyes, right? Like, <laughs> who is this? And what does it say that when they saw his power, when they saw his mercy, when they saw his love, when they saw Jesus, it says they began to worship. Surely you are the son of God. Did you notice that no one had to tell them to worship? No one had to, to get their emotions going with a certain kind of song. No, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped. I ask you, church, how much more should we worship and trust in Jesus on this side of the cross and the resurrection? The Peter, the, these disciples, Peter in this moment, he just had a glimpse of who Jesus was. But think about it, at the cross, Jesus didn't just come to us in the storm. Jesus took upon that storm of God's wrath entirely upon himself. He didn't just come to us, he took it. He took the punishment for sin that we deserved on that cross. He died the death that our sin caused. Not only did he walk over waves, no, in the resurrection, he soared over life's most terrifying waves, the waves of sin and death. Not only has he reached down and pulled us out of the water and pulled us to himself, but he has put his spirit within us so that we never have to walk through a storm alone again. I ask you, is he worthy of our worship? Is he worthy of our trust? I love that song that says, is anyone worthy? And you just say it over again. He is, he is, he is. I believe in this room this morning, there are three kinds of people. The first group are those in this room that have never gotten out of the boat. Maybe you, you, you know about Jesus this morning. Maybe you've admired him from afar. 
but you've never trusted in him. You've never said, Jesus, I need you to save me. Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to bring me into relationship with you. I need you to rescue me. I put my trust in you. I turn from this boat, from the trying to earn salvation, trying to to be good enough on my own. I'm going to step out into the water trusting that you are a savior who can save me. This morning, I'm just telling you, I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're someone who's never put your trust in Jesus because you don't know if he's trustworthy. Maybe your storms in your life, they're raging and you're fearful this morning, but I'm just telling you, Jesus is an object, a worthy object of your Turn from your sin, a worthy object of your trust. Today, my prayer for you is that you would turn from your sin and put your trust in him. Step out of the boat this morning. The second group in this room are those who have stepped out of the boat. You've put your trust in Jesus. You've walked with him. You've, you've taken steps of obedience. Your eyes were on him. But at some point, the storms came. The doubts came. The circumstances changed. You began to not look at Jesus, but you began to look around at the circumstances. You looked at the wind and the waves. And slowly but surely, you've begun to, to sunk into the water. You're not walking like you used to walk. I've got great news for you this morning. The encouraging word of this text is very simple. Simply put your eyes back on Jesus this morning. That's all we gotta do. Repentance is simply that, continually turning from ourselves, putting our trust in Jesus. There was a point that you trusted him wholeheartedly. Trust him wholeheartedly today. There's a point that, that you believed and obeyed his commands. Believe and obey his commands today. Jesus is not distant. While you may have been sinking, he was not. And he's there with his hand stretched out for you this morning saying, return your eyes to me. May you do so today. The last group in this room are those who who are out of the boat and you're walking and your eyes are on Jesus this morning. I know that many of you are living that walk and I just wanna commend you, keep walking. Keep your eyes on him. The storms of this life Although they may seem heavy, they will not last forever. Keep walking, friend. The journey of faith oftentimes simply just means this. We take one step. For those of you, it may be a step out of the boat. For some of you, it's reaching out to grab back onto Jesus. For some of you, it's just to keep walking. But I have to ask you this morning, what step is God calling you to take this morning? The Bible is not just here so that we can read it, think, man, that's awesome, and then go on our day. We are to apply it to our lives. Jesus is worthy this morning. What is he calling you to do?